Hi, it's Allie. Before we get started with this episode, I'd like to announce the winner of our gift card giveaway. Emma Jean 789 comments, If you need career guidance or you are just genuinely curious about an interesting array of occupations, this is the podcast for you. Interesting and fast-paced episodes that feature the ins and outs of different careers with a cheerful host. I already have a master's of education, but the unique careers highlighted on this podcast have me dreaming about making a career change. Loved the episode on music therapy, a field I had no idea even existed. Thank you so much, Emma Jean, for the very nice comment. Please reach out to me at employedpodcast at gmail.com so I can get your information and send you your gift card. Welcome to Employed, a podcast about careers. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about. Employed is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and today we'll be speaking with Craig, a commercial airline pilot. The moonrise at night, you know, when you're over the ocean, you know, it's just really dark. And then you see this orange mushroom, meteor showers. That's a great place to be is over the ocean at 30, 40,000 feet. You know, flying over the Cascade Mountains going into Seattle and seeing, you know, Puget Sound and the Olympic Mountains, you know, with, with snow cover. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of really neat things that I'm going to miss. Thank you so much, Craig, for joining me tonight and for donating your time to tell me a little bit about what you do. So if you could just introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do for a living. I'm Craig, and I'm a, currently I'm an airline captain of a major international uh, commercial airline based in the U.S., but the thing is, I've, I've been based in several different cities because uh, one thing about being a pilot is you can move around very easily. So I was a uh, Air Force pilot. I flew all kinds of uh, 135 model aircraft in the Air Force. After that, the airlines just were, were hiring really well at the time. So I decided to leave the Air Force and join the airlines. And at that time, they were snapping people up left and right. I had interviewed with... Uh, five airlines and every one of them gave me an offer. So I was able to choose my first, my first choice. So I've been uh, with my airline now for 32 years and uh, I'm required to retire at 65. Just uh, about seven, eight years ago, you know, for 60 years, you had to retire at 60. But then after the great recession, a lot of uh, airlines folded. A lot of the guys lost jobs and had to get hired by someone else and they lost their pensions. So they, lobbied Congress to allow us to fly till 65, which was interesting because up until that point, everybody thought, man, over 60 and, you know, you're going to be dangerous in the air. It's not going to be a good, good image for the airlines. But when Congress said, you know, these guys need to make more money, then they said, well, we can fly till 65. And that matches uh, Medicare and all that stuff. So what got you interested in flying in the first place? Well, interestingly, I, uh, when I went into college, I wanted to be an electrical engineer. In high school, I was ROTC, and I wanted to continue ROTC in college, so I joined the Air Force ROTC. I was Army in high school, and when I got to college, I thought, let's give Air Force a try, because that seemed like a more gentlemanly uh, service. After my sophomore year, they t- allowed me to take a test, which is called a ASVAB. It's, it's a vocational aptitude battery to see what you're good at and for the Air Force, and it just so happened that yeah, I was pretty good at flying, so... I took that part of the test and they said, well, we'd like to offer you a, a pilot scholarship. And I'm like, well, you know, if this uh, pilot thing doesn't work out, I still have my engineering to fall back on. What kind of education or experience is required for someone who wants to be a pilot? There are the FAA requirements 
but there's also each airline has its own requirements. The minimum for most airlines is not the really the minimum. So when I say an airline, like our airline usually is, you know, you've got to have at least 1500 hours. You've got to have a college degree. And of course you have to have the ratings. You've got to have a, a commercial rating, your instrument rating, your airline transport rating. And then of course, you know, once you get uh, your ratings, your, your certificates, aside from your, your multi-engine jet aircraft uh, kind of thing. And we got guys flying for our airline who were army helicopter pilots, you know, came, came, used to be crop duster guys. I mean, just as long as you have those ratings, you have your 1500 hours. This isn't really a requirement. When I got hired 2020 vision, if you were uncorrected, you went to the top of the list. And of course they would hire you corrected if uh, you were either really stellar hands or, you know, we were just running out of the pilot pool. When you go to get hired, then there's an aptitude, there's a battery of aptitude tests, physical conditioning tests, you know, your medical tests. I spent three days going through the interview process. So they want to make sure that you, you know, they're going to hire you and you're not going to be a huge cost to them. Plus the fact they don't want someone having a heart attack while they're you know, over the ocean somewhere. So there's, I mean, there's a lot um, that uh, goes into qualifying. Now, like I said, the minimum is usually people are going to try and do more than the minimum so that they can have an advantage when they get to the interview process. So like I said, it was 1500 hours. When I got hired, it was 1500 hours. But if you didn't have 2,500 hours, they wouldn't even look at you because everybody going for the interview was 2,500 hours or more. And yeah, the airline industry is changing drastically as of this year. So um, we've lost a lot of pilots. Last year, they said there was a pilot shortage. And now every airline is you know, dumping pilots as well as everyone else. But when it all comes back again in you know, two or three years, then mm-hmm. so this would be your opportunity to start working on you know, getting your pilot's licenses, getting your ratings, getting your 1,500 hours, which most guys do by being an instructor. So they will be, they get paid for getting their hours. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and then on top of that, you have an instructor, you know, you have instructor ratings on your license. That'll give you a big advantage to be hired by an airline because then now they can use you as an instructor in this, in their training department. To become an airline pilot, it takes years. And most airlines, you got to get that four-year degree for starters. Of course, you, know, you can, you can get your private pilot's license, you know, when you're 16, 17 years old. So you can get those things while you're getting your college degree and then then just go work for a you can work like i say you can be crop duster you can deliver the mail literally they got people delivering paychecks you can um work for a corporate group a lot of walmart's got corporate pilots almost all the major companies have corporate pilots a corporate aviation and there's a lot of ways to get that time right so and with you you know talking about how it it takes years. So what's the general age range that you see in coworkers around you, other pilots that work for the same airline? Well, generally speaking, you're going to, most of our pilots are being hired in their late twenties, you know, mid to late twenties. And like, and most of them are, are, and the reason that is, is because you had to go to college and then they had to get that 1500 hours. So they did it by working for some other commercial outfit, a smaller airline or corporate airliners. So it takes time to do those things. So it's rare to see anyone hired under, say, 25, 26 years old. Almost half of the guys I've flown with in my career, this is their second, third, or fourth airline. And uh, only because you know airlines have folded or 
been merged. I have been fortunate, and it's rare. I'm very rare. I was hired by my airline, and it has been my airline. You know, we're the ones who do the buying. We're the ones who, you know, uh, that um, bring other airlines into us. So um, of the, you know, handful of major airlines left out there. Is my, just kind of going back with demographics, is my assumption right on it, it's more of a male-dominated field? That's how I imagine, but maybe I'm wrong. It is very male-dominated. Um, and, and that's simply because of the hiring pool. I mean, our airline would love to hire more females. They're just not applying. You know, they're just not out there. And, and just as uh, the, the military is, you know, beginning to really put, you know, women in, in combat aircraft and uh, more um, operational aircraft, not just transport aircraft, you're starting to see more you know, females go into the flying part of the military or just flying in general, but still. It's, it's just not something that, uh, that women consider careers. They're thinking in the business world. Up until September, we had 14,000 pilots. And of the 14,000 pilots, we probably had about 50 females. So it's, I mean, it's a very low percentage. I didn't realize that it was that dominant. Yeah. So what is the range of salary that someone can typically expect to make, let's say, commercial? It's a wide range because it's all based on Years of service, whether you're a co-pilot or a captain, the airplane you're on, where the airplane goes. So I'll give you a couple of examples, but the, the basic pay structure starts out with uh, you're a new hire. So for about the first year, you're on probation and you're going to get a, a real basic you know, salary. But after that, after probation, they, then you start, and it could be six months depending on your airline. After that, now you start getting what's hourly pay. So your hours are based on from the moment you block out, which is when you leave the gate until you arrive back at the gate at your destination. That is what you get paid on. Along with that, you know, you're going to get paid per diem, which is from when you sign in until you release at the end of your trip. And then uh, if you fly international, then you have your international override. And that depends, again, if you're a co-pilot or a captain. You know, basically, when you start out, and if you're starting out as a regional pilot, Basically, you qualify for welfare. So it's very low pay. Most guys, that's a stepping stone. They're just on their way to somewhere. You come into the major airline and you could be making, you know, from day one, you could be making um, 50000 you know, a year. And then if you get hired and you go right into a larger airplane after probation, you could be making one hundred and fifty grand after, you know, first, second year. And then, of course, you know, it goes up from there. I'd say mid-level guys are probably making quarter million dollars a year. And, and this is just a rare story, but it, but it happened. My airline got a new airplane. And uh, before they could train enough guys to adequately staff that airplane, it was a major, I mean, it was, it, it was a Asian, it went from here to Asia and back. So it flew long distances, hauled a lot of people and a lot of cargo, but they didn't have enough guys to adequately staff that airplane for a couple of years. So that means the guys who are qualified to fly it, they did a lot of overtime flying. And overtime flying could be double or triple pay. So there were a lot of guys who were making a million bucks a year because almost all of their flying was overtime flying. So, I mean, that, that's, you're probably not going to see that again. But once they started adequately staffing the airplane, then they were making you know, half a million dollars a year. And that included all those things. It includes their base pay and their international pay and their per diem pay and, and other things. So. So you can, yeah, you, you can start making some pretty good money right off the bat. 
It's a wide range. That's so interesting that with a pilot's license. Yeah, when it comes to space scale, I mean, there's a whole matrix, you know, for the pay scales and it's in the contracts. There are guys who, you know, they just, they have other jobs. We got, we have pilots who are lawyers. We have pilots who are doctors. We got pilots who are teachers. We got pilots who do other things. So a lot of times they just fly, you know, as little as they can. They got their benefits and they're still making 200 grand a year from us and whatever they're, they have their own business. You can fly as much as you want, make as much as you want. Let me let me jump into that then to to hours. What kind of hours can you be working? I know that that you mentioned that you were kind of on call. Some airlines will limit how many hours you can fly. I mean, the FAA definitely limits limits how many hours you can fly per month, per week, per year. You're pretty much limited to 100 hours a month, 1,000 hours a year. The FAA, but those are actual flight hours. You know, so if you say I worked. I worked 80 hours this month. That's from the time you leave the gate until you arrive at the next gate. I mean, your actual, you know, you, you'll be away from home, you know, turnaround trips that are one day trips. We got two day trips. We got everything from one day to six day to seven day. We had 10 day trips. We would fly from the US to like Tokyo. And then we would spend a week flying around Tokyo, you know, the Asia, you know, from Tokyo to Shanghai to to Korea, back to Tokyo, down to, you know. So then you'd fly back to the U.S. after eight, nine, 10 days. So it depends on what you're doing. You can be gone for four days and you've only flown, you know, 20 hours, maybe 30 hours, I and mean, it all depends. And, and of course, pilots have to keep a logbook. That's another requirement for the FAA. You know, it's not just I go to work and I go home. You know, you've got to keep track of everything you do. You've got to write it down. You've got to keep track of how many hours your flute. Were they daytime hours or nighttime hours? Were they instrument hours? You know, were they an hour isn't an hour. You know, for us, it, it's that hour is tagged for a lot of different things. And in layovers, when I was flying domestically, layovers are generally you're required to have eight hours behind the door. So most airlines will give you the minimum. Nine hours, 10 hours is the minimum. And it could be you could have up to you know 15, 24 hour layovers domestically. Internationally, the minimum is usually 24 hours, usually 36 hours. And sometimes you could be in Paris for four or five days, depending on the frequency your airline is going back and forth to Paris. You know, it could just be, you know, you get in at 10 o'clock at night, you're leaving at you know, eight o'clock in the morning. You got just enough time to, if you can find food that time of night. And of course, you know, you just, you've been gone, you've been flying for 13 hours that day with no opportunity to eat because, you know, it's just, you know, land, switch airplanes, take off, land, switch airplanes, take off. Um, so most guys carry a food bag with them, you know, snacks and granola, you know, granola bars and stuff like that, just in case you only get that, you know, nine hour layover and it's you know, between 10 o'clock at night and <laughs> eight o'clock, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. So in my head, when I think pilot, I'm like, oh, they get to see the world and yeah, fly to Paris and you get to tour Paris in your off time. But it, I guess it, it isn't really like that, right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, when you fly internationally, your layovers, generally you're in your great places and the layovers are not short. You have plenty of time to go out and do something. The only problem is when you get in, most people, when I say most people, I've been 95% of people, if you're going to Europe, you just, you get in you know, early in the morning and then you'll go right to bed because you've been up for, you know, for quite a while because you were up all day before your flight left at nine o'clock at night. And then you land and they go to bed and they'll sleep until like four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Asia is even a different story because that's, that's a 14 hour flight or, you know, it could be 12 to 14 hour flight. 
are there special benefits to working in this field? For example, discounted flights or anything like that? We do get discounted flights, but naturally, you ask any flight attendant, they didn't join the airline to be a flight attendant. They joined the airline to see the world and have fun. And they do. You fly for free, basically. It's, you know, standby status. You know, it's, it's space available. There's no charge for filling up an empty seat as an employee. And I mean, any employee, any employee gets these benefits. And I highly recommend you use them because they're rare and it's a great way to see the world. I have a great time on my layovers, but then, you know, my wife and I will, you know, take a week and we'll head out to Paris or, or Dublin or, you know, Nice or uh, Berlin or somewhere and we'll rent a car, you know, and, and the only thing we pay for is our uh, lodging in the car. That's you know, pretty much all of our flying is free. And if you're a crew member, if you're a pilot or a flight attendant, then you have jump seats on the airplane, which means that's a given seat. You can reserve that seat. A lot of times for me as a pilot, that's the only way I can fly is on a jump seat because the airplanes have been full. I mean, for the last several years, airplanes are packed. You're not working, but you might be asked to help out. So yeah, any, any employee, if there's a room on an airplane and that airplane's going somewhere, you get it. And it doesn't, it doesn't cost a thing. A lot of opportunity there for people who love to travel. Yeah, a lot, yeah. if you love to travel, this is definitely the, the job for you. How is your progress measured? Who manages you and how do they know that you are getting better at your job? That's, that's a good thing and a bad thing with being a pilot is far as I know, pretty much every commercial airline pilot is part of a union. So the union negotiates with a company everything about you, you know, your pay rates, how much you work, days you can get off. I mean, just absolutely everything about your life is negotiated. So it behooves you to know the contract for one thing. But as far as, you know, your boss, the line pilot is uh, assigned to a base, you know, your city. So depending on what your airline uses as a base, my airline's got probably eight bases in the country. We have a couple of international bases. Your base is going to have a chief pilot. And that chief pilot is responsible for his pilots and his base. And he answers to the corporate vice president of flight operations. Then there's going to be a senior vice president of flight operations. So there's, there's a chain of command up there. But I answer basically to my chief pilot. He is the conduit. He is the information chain from the company down to me. He is also my chain back up to the company. But most of his job is you're making sure that the pilots have what they need for being safe. And then, of course, you know, his job is to keep track of anything, any problems that happen. And I guarantee it, every day something happens. We have so many departures a day, so many pilots flying every day. It can be something very small to where just me and the co-pilot know about it. Or it could be something very large where, you know, there's an investigation, there are ramifications. And so, you know, he's going to be the management's representative, and I'm going to have my union representative. And we'll deal with this along with the FAA and the NTSB or whoever else gets involved. Yeah, we answer to our base's chief pilot. So, and speaking of this, this hierarchy or this chain of command, is that something that people generally try to work towards in their career, you know, becoming a chief pilot and so on? Is that, is that pretty common to try and work up towards I'm that? Gonna tell, that's a really rare thing. It takes a rare person to okay. want to do that. There are certain aspirations. I'm going to say 90% of the pilots just want to be pilots. They want to work up into that big airplane and, and live the high life of the international, you know, airline captain thing. So, um, and I can fly to 65 doing that. 
It's not a hard thing. To do. No, most guys just want to be pilots. But if there's a guy who wants to be in the corporate, if he wants to climb up into a flat operations, you know, in, into a desk job, you're going to find out who that guy is right away. Can you walk me through an average day at your job? Let's say from the time you arrive to the airport to the time that you leave the airport. Every day has got a challenge to it. Every day. I mean, even if you fly three legs in that day, every leg is going to be different. But flying domestically, because you can fly three, four, five legs in a day. You can do that for four or five days. Internationally, it's one leg. And then, you know, basically, you know, you got a day off. And then it's one leg and you're done. But domestically, the only thing I know for sure is my sign-in time. Once you sign in, all bets are off. And so, you know, if airplanes break and now you are behind on the schedule, then they'll take you off of what was your original trip and put you on somewhere else because, you know, that's just more efficient than making you wait around for this airplane to get fixed or, you know, weather happens and you divert and now you're getting way behind in your schedule. So the airplane you were supposed to take out, but you're over here in another base. Well, someone just got that. They got to sign that one. So he took that. So when you get into your airport, you know, I mean, your, your trip has just changed. There is no typical day. Once you sign in, once you check in and, you know, you, you take a look at what your, your flight plan is, take a look at the weather, then you go to the airplane. Signing in again, you got to go through, you know, crew security, which is a lot different than everybody else. And then you get to your pilot's lounge. Some guys will just get in there early and talk to their buddies. And they get to the lounge, they sign in, they get what they need, and they go to the airplane. And then there's you pre-flight the airplane. Generally speaking, the co-pilot is the one who does the outside walk around. And the passengers come on. Of course, you've you got to brief the flight attendants. You know, that's um, federal aviation regulation. The FAR is just you know, tell them what the time is, you know, give them an idea what the weather is as far as expected turbulence, weather, you know, either taking off or landing. Or big thing they want to know is turbulence. They want to know how much time they have to do their job before they think they got to sit down. Flight attendants, I mean, they are busy from usually about 10,000 feet. You know, they get up and start working. Some people, you know, once you level off, but that whole time you're flying, they're out there doing something. And if they have to sit down for 10, 15 minutes, that kills their timing. So they want to know these things. They'd like to know what the weather's like at landing. Is it going to be bumpy? Is it going to, you know, are we going to have to hold for a while? But it's just, I mean, there is no typical, you know, once you leave the ground, there's just so much that goes on on the ground. Most things happen when you're on the ground. You know, if you're, if you're going to find a broken airplane, that's going to be during your pre-flight. And then now I, I had a trip one time. It was domestic. We got to the airplane you know, it just, it just, the moment we got there, it started. Before the flight attendants who came on, the oxygen, you know, our oxygen system was low. So now they had to come in and uh, replace the oxygen cylinder. That takes a while. Once we started uh, getting the uh, engine started, and we start one engine usually, we just start one engine, taxi on one engine, because it's very fuel efficient. And you don't need two engines to taxi usually. We're, we're driving out there and we're at the end of the runway, we're starting the other engine, won't start. So now you got to pull over and you got to figure out what's going on. And I got to call maintenance and they give you some ideas. Then you got to drive back to the gate. At this point, you know, you're thinking, just get me a new airplane. And then, they, then you get a passenger problem because, oh, oh my gosh, I'm not going to make my uh, connection. So I want to get off the airplane now. Well, because of all the security and stuff, you, you don't just get off the airplane. You know, there's a lot involved there. And it just got to be you know, it snowballed. And we went out there and we started the engine again. It wouldn't start again. And it was for a different reason. 
And it just got to the point where we were very late. The passengers were very upset. Um, it just it just snowballed. And there's a lot of times like that. Once you get into the air, I mean, I, there's just so many things about flying. Just and they change monthly. You know how you do it, the regulations, the rules, the routes. Anything can happen. Just anything can happen. You know, like I said, weather can happen. You get to your destination and some guy has a problem and shuts a runway down. But usually it's small things. It's, you know, usually it's small things. It's just a, you know, procedural errors that cause conflicts with other airplanes, usually on the ground. Taxiing is probably one of the more difficult things to do. You know, as they say, there's never been the perfect flight yet. Going into LaGuardia one time, it was kind of a drizzly day. And there are high-rise apartments right in front of the runway in LaGuardia, especially if you're landing on runway four. And so uh, it's a very short runway. Unfortunately, we did not have a big airplane at the time. And we got, you know, just about a thousand feet off the ground, which is very close to the ground. Controller says, hey, sorry, man, but I got you too close. I'm going to have to send you around unless you can do cut a 360 and you can make a big left turn. I did a 360 degree 30 bank left turn, 30 degree bank left turn. I want to land this airplane. And I, and I love flying. I mean, I love sticking around. So I you know, autopilot's off. I just did a quick, you know, level 360 right there as you're descending. I'll bet that gave the passengers a, you can almost touch the apartment down there. Yeah, there's just days like that. There's just, you just never know, you know? And then of course, winter time comes and you've got that to deal with. Winds are a problem. Water's a problem. Ice is a problem. Other airplanes are a problem. Come to find out lately, you guys in jetpacks are problems. Drones are problems. You know, the, the little guy flying a Cessna is a problem. Well, man, I got a story going into Daytona Beach one night, making a landing. We were on a short final landing in Daytona Beach, and this little Cessna flies right in front of me. I'm at a 727, and this guy flies right in front of me. He doesn't have, he has no idea that there's a 727 right coming right at him. So I threw all my landing lights on. Oh my God! Now he knew there was a 727. I, I bet I bet he had to change his pants after that because we were right on top of him, and he got talked to later by the uh, tower people. So stuff like that happens all the time. That's incredible. Just thinking about all of the different moving parts and just everything that goes on kind of behind the scenes. I'm surprised that it even goes as smoothly as it does. I mean, I, I fly a lot and. We really just have had a handful of issues of delays or, you know, things like that. I just, I can't believe how smoothly it runs. Well, it, it, it's all, like I said, it's, you don't look behind the curtain. I asked you this a little bit um, before we started this interview, but what do pilots usually talk about during flights with each other? Is it all technical operation conversations? Are you guys talking about your personal lives? It is the whole gamut. Usually, you know, the, and I can tell you that there's always, you know, three basic questions. First time you fly with somebody, it's always the three basic questions. Where do you live? Got any hobbies? You know, do you like golf? You know, what do you do? You got any other jobs? Because a lot of guys, it's amazing what they do. They have other jobs. They have uh, businesses they own. We talk about where we're going. You want to go out to dinner? Where do you want to go? You got any good places? You got any suggestions? Have you ever been here before? And then, of course, it runs the gamut, politics and everything, religion, everything else. I and mean, there's nothing is, is off the table. And when you're flying, like if you're 10 hours with a guy, it kind of dries up pretty quickly. And there are some guys who, you know, just uh, they, got a, they have a reputation. 
you know, just don't talk about this with them. Don't talk about it with them. They will become so focused on that. They forget to fight. <laughs> you know, like I said, we're a pretty civil group up there. Cool. And I can only, there's only three guys in my 32 years, only three guys. I never want to fly. With <laughs> yeah. That's always just interesting to think about what's going on up there. So, okay. So I like to ask this question for the people who generally prefer to kind of work on their own or work in a quiet space compared to the people who like to always be talking with other people and interacting. What do you think this job caters more to? Well, you know, and again, that's one thing about being pilots is we come from every facet of life. We come from everywhere. You know, I'm a engineer by education and we've got psychologists and I'm not a big conversation. I don't start conversations. I just, I'm, I'm a quiet guy. And I've had people that will just not shut up. And there are other people who, you know, I'll sit in the cockpit for five hours and nothing's ever said, except, you know, things that are required to be said, just because we're quiet people. But there are requirements, there are rules and regulations of what you can do and can't do while you're in your in the control seats. You know, if there's a guy in a jump seat, that's nice because you got him to talk to or her to talk to. The other guy's quiet. You know, I would say that generally speaking, you're not going to get into this job unless you are a little outgoing. You're going to be sitting with someone for a long time, and unless both of you are monks, um, it, you know, someone's going to talk. There's so many different people. I rarely fly with the same people, especially if you're flying domestic and it's a very large, what they call category. My airplane right now, the airplane I fly was a 767-400. It's the largest 767 they make. We only have like 21 of them, so it's a very small category. So I get to know most of the people. But if you got, you know, like a 757, you may not fly with the same person for a right. year. You know, some guys, if you fly with a lot, then you're like really good friends. And you can actually, you can actually bid to fly with people if they're really good friends. So, cause you're like laying over yeah. with them or, you know, you guys like golfing together or playing tennis together or whatever. Do you have a favorite place or airport or route to, to take? I love London. I enjoy uh, Frankfurt quite a bit. Nice is a great place because you can go to so many places from Nice. I mean, short trips, you know, Monaco or down to Cannes or whatever, because the trains go there really easily. I, I, go, I love going to Accra, Ghana, great place. Puerto Rico, you know, I, I just fantastic. Uh, I, I love the layover, the great, great hotel, fantastic beach, really neat place. I tend to uh, rate my layovers by workouts, you know, the gym and where I can run. Paris, I really enjoyed Paris. Again, trains go to anywhere. And so I've gotten very used to what a really efficient public transportation system is like. And they, I just love everywhere I go. I really do. I, I, I love flying into some places, you know, Sao Paulo. Flying in there is always uh, cool. I mean, there's the mountains around Sao Paulo and the way we have to fly around the mountains. And, and there's this one turn we make right over this monastery that only the captain gets to see because it's my side of the airplane. And so we make this big turn um, and we're just, you know, a couple thousand feet on, above this mountain. And it really is. I mean, you can see people waving. I mean, it's really that close. And then once you get over the city, it's just huge. Some pretty close friends there that I actually met here in the U.S. So, you know, we'll go out restaurants. They have great restaurants. They belong to a, uh, a country club that we go to there. So I have a question on, let's say that you get assigned to somewhere that you've never been or an airport that is brand new and just been built. Is that nerve wracking to fly into an airport for a very first time when you 
you've never been there. You don't know what to expect. Like what's going through your head? Well, you just described every trip I had when I started flying international. I've never been to these places. And not only that, but there are different rules outside this country that you have to know those rules. And then of course there are, you know, accent barriers. But, you know, before you get there, you've got all this time to, you know, study up and look at it. And hopefully, you know, one of your co-pots has been there, you know, and there's a lot of airports like in uh, Sao Paulo, Rio, um, if it's a mountainous airport, you know, Lima, you know, something, you have to be qualified to go there. Oh, okay. If it's a very difficult arrival, before you can go there, you have to have one of these uh, line check pilots, one of these kind of kind of instructor guys sit with you and he's going to tell you all about, you know, what, what to expect and how to do this and how our airline does this and what the safest practices is. And these are the tips and the hints. And then once you get on the ground, you know, I'll tell you, when you land in um, Madrid, oh, my gosh, the taxi way, flying to Madrid is the problem. It's driving in Madrid. <laughs> you, I mean, you really do need to have someone who is familiar with the Spanish accent and familiar with how they taxi you, you know, the, the verbiage, the, the way they instruct you around. Usually you have time to study up and all this stuff while you're going. Generally speaking, it's, uh, it's because of the complex arrivals going in. It's not getting there. You were a pilot during 9-11. Can you talk about that day a little bit? That was my second trip as a captain. Brand new captain on a brand new airplane. Gorgeous morning, man. It was supposed to be a four-day trip. My first leg was uh, Atlanta to, uh, to Washington, Reagan National. We're actually on the, on the arrival coming in up the Potomac River. And we heard that, uh, hey, New York's airspace just got shut down. Well, that's nothing new. New York's airspace shuts down all the time. That didn't mean anything. And then they started talking about now, you know, they're shutting down Washington's airspace. We didn't know what was going on. So, you know, we landed and it just so happened that as we landed, just as we landed, the American jet hit the Pentagon. And, you know, the Pentagon, you can see the Pentagon, it's looking right at it because we were landing to the north. You know, we stopped the airplane and we started to turn off the runway to go to the gate. And they told everybody, just stop where you are. Just stay where you are because nobody knew what was going on. And you could see, and then the, smart, the smoke started coming because it was a north wind. We we're landing to the north. The, so the, the winds are coming in from the north. And uh, they were blowing all the smoke and debris from the Pentagon over towards the airport. So my four-day trip became a, a six-day, I mean, we have no idea what's going on. I mean, everybody was speculating and it just was really ugly. And so we finally got everyone off the airplane, everyone out of the airport, and they took the flight crews to a, a, a special room so we would all be together. And then our companies would know where we are and what we're supposed to do next. And the companies didn't know what to do, so they said, just uh, find a place to stay. But that was one of those days that, I mean, that took a lot of, again, took a lot of uh, coordination, a lot of, you know, just handling the situation, what to do with all these flight attempts. I had my crew left. They quit. That day, they quit. They said, we're done. They rented a car. And that's the last time they worked for an airline. We had to get lodging. We had to deal with a company. We had to make sure we, you know, it, it, you know, it was where we stay. Are we, are we staying in a safe place? I want to hear some stories with how long you have been in this field. I'm sure you have so many memorable moments. Can you 
maybe just share some experiences that stand out to you? There are some just stunning moments. Crystal clear day flying over Greenland is gorgeous. You know, watching um, the Aurora Borealis, you know, when you're flying over Iceland is really neat. Watching, you know, the, the sunrise over the Ural Mountains going into Moscow and stuff is really cool. You know, watch, there's a lot of really neat things. It's just beautiful stuff. The moonrise at night, you know, when you're over the ocean, you know, it's just really dark. And then you see this orange mushroom. And it's the only thing out there. I mean, it's so dark. Meteor showers. That's a great place to be is over the ocean at 30, 40,000 feet. You know, there's just a, a lot of uh, beautiful things, you know, going into uh, in Paris in the spring and seeing all the mustard fields are gorgeous. Thunderstorms, they are the most beautiful things at 38, 39,000 feet, you know, to fly close to a thunderstorm. The lightning comes out of the cloud or, or when, the, when the in-cloud lightning goes off and it lights up this whole cloud at night. And, and this, in this cloud, you are just like a raisin you know, next to a, like a watermelon. And this thing is so large and it's so ugly and it's so awesome and so powerful. And there's so much energy in this thing. And you're flying this close to it and it starts lighting up on you. And it's just stunning. And it's just things like that, you know, mountains, mountain ranges, and, uh, or, you know, just amazing mornings or landing just as the sun is setting. And it's a nice, you know, beautiful, clear evening, you know, fall evening or even, you know, spring evening. You know, flying over the Cascade Mountains going into Seattle and seeing, you know, Puget Sound and the Olympic Mountains, you know, with, with snow cover. And, and, you know, you're flying right over Seattle past the Space Needle as you're landing, you know, south. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of really neat things that I'm going to miss. I mean, there are days that really stand out. There was a day we were taken off out of... Uh, Atlanta, we had just, I was a co-pilot on this airplane. And so we had literally you know, 200 feet off the ground and our uh, right engine started stalling on us. I mean, flames were belching out the back of the engine. It, it was booming. I mean, we had to shut the engine down um, pretty quickly. And I mean, you're, when you take off, that is the, the most critical part of any flight because you are so underpowered. You're using everything you have when you take off. You don't have a lot of extra power to play with there so anything that happens you know you can't just push the power up you you either lower the nose and try and you know gain airspeed that way well here we were just a few hundred feet off the ground we're chopping the engine on this poor guy the captain who's flying the time and uh, so me and the engineer in the back are uh, are going through checklists we're bringing the, the airplane back getting this rudder in you know getting him all stabilized while he's flying and i'm like you know this was not hard at all this was very natural. It just, you know, we trained for this and, and it's, you know, just like we train. And as long as nobody freaks out and the guy flying just reacts naturally, then things worked out really well. Lastly, just for fun, if you could be doing anything else for a living, money and education were not factors, what do you think you would be doing? I always tell this to people. I said, you know, I cannot imagine me doing anything else. This is this yeah. is the perfect job. And when I was in the third and fourth grade, I used to sit in my classroom looking outside the window thinking, one someday I'm going to have a job. I just get to play. I mean, I don't, I don't have to work. I'm just going to go play. And it's going to be outside because I hate sitting at desks. And this is it. I'll drive into a major city here and uh, there's rush hour. And you're stuck with all these people going to work. And I just go to work like once a week, maybe maybe once every other week, you know, it depends on 
how much I want to fly, how much I don't want to fly. And then when I get there, I get to have a lot of fun. I get to do all kinds because I love challenge and I get to eat great food. You know, um, I have Italian food in Italy and I have, and then I get paid for it. But if there was anything else that I could be doing, I would be a park ranger. I would be a national park ranger. Do you have a favorite national park? You know, I was uh, thinking about that. It would have to be um, somewhere with lots of trees, you know, maybe Yosemite or uh, Redwood Forest area, you know, something along that line. If you really enjoy doing different things, if you love seeing amazing sights and meeting neat people, if you love eating great food and buying stuff, you know, all over the world, or, or even if you're just flying domestically, you know, just going to great cities or neat places like, you know, I used to bid to lay over in Salt Lake in the wintertime so I could go skiing because we had time. We had time. You know, we'd have these 18-hour layovers. I mean, I would grab my skis because they'd rented skis at the airport. Then. Grab my skis at the airport. You know, I'd rent a car right there, and we'd head on up to the mountains. It's just you, there's a lot of great opportunities. And then when you're not working, travel. Go somewhere. Go see the – literally go see the world. Thank you to Craig for donating his time to the show and for all of the guests who contributed this season. Please tune back in on January 14th for the premiere of Season 2, where we talk with the executive producer of Entertainment Tonight. Here's a sneak peek. I'm responsible for Entertainment Tonight, the brand, and all of our content. So basically, I oversee the nightly television show, which has been on the air. This is uh, Season 40, so it's been on for 40 years. And the show is a mix of entertainment news as well as exclusive interviews with big stars. Basically, if it has an ET bug on it, it's that little thing on the corner of the screen that's yellow and it has a big ET in it, and I'm somehow responsible for it. Happy holidays and see you next year. Thanks for listening.